This morning's scripture reading comes from Mark chapter 10, verses 17 to 27. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. This is the word of the Lord. We're beginning a, a new series uh, today, uh, this morning, and um, we're, we're calling it The Hard Sayings of Jesus. Uh, it's a common, common type of, or theme in, in a lot of churches. And what I mean by hard sayings, uh, I, I don't, I, on one hand we're talking about the difficult sayings, the things that Jesus says in the Gospels that are kind of unusual and you need to unpack and it's difficult to understand. But it's also hard in a sense, like kind of like hard candy. You can't just swallow hard candy, right? Um, it's not like chocolate that dissolves and melts, you know, and goes down easy. Um, you have to work at it. You need to dissolve it. And it needs to, uh, kind of like a good piece of steak, too. You need to chew on it a little bit to savor the juices. You can't just swallow it whole, because otherwise you choke, and you'd be bitter and resentful. You can be hurt by that. But you need to dwell on these sayings. You need to really unpack it and dwell on these sayings, digest what Jesus has to say. That's how we savor the richness and the fullness of what Jesus is saying. And then we're going to be able to delight in that. And this passage, it comes right after uh, Jesus, Mark chapter 9, Jesus is on a mountain, and it's that famous passage where he's transfigured. He's kind of, the glory of Jesus is displayed at that moment. And it comes right before his descent of the mountain into his entrance into Jerusalem, where he's ultimately going to rise up another mountain, and that's Calvary, and there he's going to be crucified, and he's going to die for the sake of his people and for their sins. So in between this journey up one mountain and the journey up that second mountain, Calvary, you have a series of teachings where Jesus addresses marriage, and he addresses children, and incidentally here he addresses wealth, money, These are the three things that are a big part of anyone's life at any given point in time, especially towards the latter end of our years and our adult years. And Jesus is basically saying, what's that famous passage, right? He says, it's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Very, very hard saying. What does that mean? took a long time for me to unpack that. Basically, on his journey towards suffering, he's teaching us about what it means to be a Christian. And what he's saying here, and he's not talking to just skeptics. He's teaching his disciples. These are people who've been following Jesus for years. And mainly what he's saying is, if you want to follow me, 
If you want to follow Jesus, you have to address this, your relationship with money. Money is an issue. So there's three things we're going to learn today. The warning, the teaching, the freedom. The freedom, right? The warning, that's going to teach us uh, the power of money in our lives. The teaching of Jesus, it's going to tell us about why money is a power in our lives. And then the freedom, it's going to teach us how you can be free from the power of money in our lives. The warning, the teaching, the freedom. First, the warning. Money is a power. Money has got this intoxicating power on our soul. It's going to shape our values. It shapes the measure of our worth. It shapes our beliefs. Here's this man, to kind of go into this passage a little bit, this narrative. This passage is mentioned three times in three of the Gospels, three of the four Gospels. Very important. It was significant. It was striking to these disciples as they wrote about it. Here's this man. He's confident. In the book of Matthew, it says that he's young. In the book of Luke, it says that he's a ruler. He's probably, uh, uh, in some ways, a politician or a lawyer that was given an area or a region to govern. And he's wealthy. He's got tremendous wealth, obviously. And he's got virtue. And he approaches Jesus. He comes to Jesus, and he calls him good teacher. Good teacher. And Jesus responds in verse 18. He says, why do you call me good? You call me good when God's the only measure of goodness. You know that. You're calling me good. What Jesus is really saying here is that, you know, you think you understand what it means to be good. That's why you're coming to me. But I'm going to change. I'm going to challenge your definition of goodness altogether. There's this difference between a teacher and a good teacher. Uh, for, ex- for example, a teacher, a teacher is going to help you to achieve your agenda. You know, you go to a ch- teacher, you go to a trainer, you need coaching. In other words, you're going to define that measure of goodness and that teacher is going to help you get there. You see that in sports. You see that in academics, particularly in grad school and beyond. You see that uh, in, in, any, in any discipline, in any trade that involves some sort of work and effort to get better and, uh, and better at, right? Um, but a good teacher... Teacher is going to help you get there. A good teacher is different. A good teacher, according to Jesus here, is saying he's going to challenge your definition of goodness altogether. He's going to disturb you. He's going to judge you at times. Sometimes the things he says, it's going to offend you. It's going to appall you at times. And the reason why he does that is because a teacher is catering to your agenda. But If truly Jesus is good, that's why he asks, why do you call me good? If Jesus is the good teacher in your life, then he's going to challenge your view of goodness altogether. He's going to, that's the only type of teacher that's going to change you. One that disturbs you. One that always doesn't agree with you. One that challenges you. One that sometimes you feel judged by. That's the only one. That's the only type of teacher that can change you. And and he's asking you, why do you call me good? Seeing Jesus as a good teacher, he's saying this. You have to surrender your preconceptions, your notion of what makes you good, what a good life is. You have to be willing to trust God's definition of goodness and what is good for you. Jesus tells the man, what does he say? I want you to go. I want you to sell everything. I want you to give away everything. I want you to follow me. And this rich man, he ultimately, he couldn't do it. He couldn't do it. And verse 22 gives us the reason. He had great wealth. That was his measure of goodness. That's what defined his standard of living. That's what defined what made him arrive, what, what makes him. And, and, and Jesus didn't fit into that definition. 
Jesus was actually countering that definition. And so he walked away. He was grieved. The Greek word that was used to describe his sadness was this utter distress, this utter grief. In other words, he felt bankrupt. Just the thought of giving away everything, losing his wealth. Jesus was touching on his ultimate nightmare. Everything that he built his world around, Jesus was asking to dismantle it and give it away, let it go, parcel it off. It was his ultimate nightmare, losing everything. And so um, he walked away grieving in ultimate sadness. Scripture teaches us that if you hold money to such a high value that it defines you, that it changes your values, that it changes your core beliefs, that the money is a thing that your confidence rests on because if you have lots of it, you feel confident about yourself, who you are. It's building up who you are. If you let money become that center of your life, the motivational center, the thing that drives everything that you believe, everything that you do, you've basically become a slave to your money. You become a slave to your wealth. It shaped your priorities. It shaped how you view other people. It shaped your values and how you work. Your work ethic is shaped by this. Just the mere idea of losing money, it grieves you. You feel bankrupt. This man, he comes to Jesus. Notice, Jesus doesn't prescribe another set of circumstances, another set of guidelines, another set of virtues. That's not what he does. He doesn't say, well, you know, I think you should live like this. You've been living like this. I think you should change the way you live your life. That's not really what he's saying. He's challenging his values. He's not challenging his virtues. He's challenging his values. He says, I want you to imagine your life. Take the sum of your IRAs. Take the sum of your 401Ks, your 403B. I want you to take the sum of all of your investments, all of your stock options, all of your stocks, everything that you believe is your your financial measure of worth, and I want you to let it all go. Just give it away. So that you give everything you've got, in fact, away until all you've got left is me. And follow me. That's what he says. The man couldn't bear to think about that. He walked away sad. And the warning is this. Money has such a power over us, it defines us. Money has such a grip in our lives, it becomes our measure of worth. It becomes our treasure. You know what a treasure is? It's something that you hide away, right? That's what our investments are. We don't like to talk about those things. We don't like to open those things up. You know why? Because even to give of that is to cut away your security, your security, your treasure, your worth, your, 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 your life assets. You can't live without it. In the days of the garden, the Garden of Eden, There was a time when man had complete security. There was a time when man had complete identity, very, very assured. He had worth. He had acceptance. But after the fall, after sin entered into his life, you know, it was lost. And ever since that time in the garden, we've been trying, man has been trying to get back into some semblance of the garden on his own, without God in his life. That's us before we meet Jesus, right? You're basically trying to work your way back into the garden. We all have that dream. The very thought of losing semblances and pieces of that dream is what? It's a nightmare. That's your nightmare. And Jesus is warning us that money intoxicates us to believe. Because if you've got lots of it, you start to believe that you've arrived. You've entered. You have your garden. You have it back. We're okay. We think we're back in. Why? And it's because money's, you know, practically speaking, it's got physical benefits, right? It buys you comfort. It buys you the banquet. It buys you services. But really deeply, more deeper, it gives you a semblance of control over your life. You feel like you've got greater freedom. 
You feel like, you know, with money, you've got approval. You know why? You've got relationships with money. You know, when you've got lots of money, you're never alone. You've always got people around you. And in a sense, what money does then is it distorts your view. It distorts your view of yourself. It distorts your view of other people, people who have got more than you. People who've got more than you, they're greedy. People who've got less than you, they don't work hard enough. They're lazy. They're not as worthy to you, right? And it distorts your view of yourself, who you are, how much you've arrived. If you've got a lot of it, you feel good about yourself. If you don't have a lot of it, you feel like you haven't arrived. You feel like you're not, in your, you're not comfortable in your own skin. So with money, you've got benefits, but it intoxicates you. You can buy comfort, but you'll never buy rest. You can buy the feast, the banquet, but you'll never find satisfaction. You'll never buy satisfaction. Money intoxicates you, shapes the way you think. It blinds your view of what you've really got, who you really are, and you feel good, and you've got the sense of worth, and you feel a sense of confidence, right? Money distorted this person's view of himself. Verse 17, he comes up to Jesus, and he says, what can I do to inherit eternal life? It's not a question, because the very nature of an inheritance is what? You do nothing to get it. Right? He says, what can I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus answers. He gives him some prescription. Well, he doesn't really give him prescription. He basically guides him, and he says, no, 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 I've done all those things. I'm good. Check. I am worthy. That's why I'm coming to you. Why did this man go to Jesus? He's thinking, you know, I live a virtuous life. I live a good life. I do all the right things. That's pretty much what he's saying to Jesus. And I've got wealth. And, I've, and I'm looked well upon. And I'm leading people. I'm a ruler over a body of people. And I've got all these things going for me. But I need to make sure that I don't lack that one thing. I need to go to somebody who can validate that I'm not lacking anything. I need to make sure. Because I feel like I'm missing something. Deep down inside in every human heart, if you read books like by Ernest Becker, The Nile of Death, or, anything, or Victor Frankl, Man's Search for Meaning, deep inside of every person, there is an inherent doubt that you're good enough. Deep inside. And it's because, you know, all earthly forms of validation, all early, uh, earthly forms of, of validation, they're never going to give us the, the cosmic validation that we actually need. We had it in the garden, but we lost it in the garden. We've been kicked out of the garden. And as a result, there's this inherent spiritual insecurity that resides. And, and uh, you know, you're looking for ultimate approval. That's what he's doing. That's what this man's doing. He's looking for ultimate approval. That's why he comes to Jesus and says, good teacher, you are that measure of goodness. I need your validation. We're all looking for that. Deep inside, we're all looking for somebody, around, somebody outside of us. Nobody can validate themselves. What writer do you know says, I don't care what anybody else thinks. I don't care how many books are purchased. You know, I know I'm a good writer. What writer do you know thinks like that? What musician do you know says, I don't care what anybody thinks about me, you know, as long as I know that I'm good enough. Every one of us needs somebody outside of us to validate us. And it's because deep inside there's this insecurity that, de- that we desire the ultimate validation, a cosmic validation. That's why we so need people to approve. We so, we're just so driven. We're people pleasers. And, and um, you know, deep inside we're looking for that. And that's why you think wealth is enough. You think having enough money gets you there. 
You think if you just have the right work ethic, you just work and you work to get there, you think that's going to be enough. And every, you think, you know, you just need to hear everybody around you or somebody outside of you telling you, you know what, I respect you. I respect the way you live your life. We just need to hear that. That's why we just need to hear people say, you know, I admire you because of what you've done with your life. Every one of us, we're looking for validation. And that's why we work to build a reputation. And when that one person, you hear about that one person who says that bad thing about you, it, you just fall apart. And that's why, you know, you just need affirmation from that one person, you know, who's beautiful, who's pretty. If that person thinks well of me, then you know you feel good about yourself. You feel beautiful. You feel approved. Deep inside, we thought that wealth and virtue and these kind of things, these are the sums of what we need for validation. And it's not. We know that. Our sin has created such a gap. That's the garden. We were driven out of the garden. Our sin has created such a gap between us and God. Nothing can fill that val- the need for that validation. Uh, in the 1990s, there's a movie, um, I've probably quoted this in the past, um, called Tombstone. And it's about the history of the Wyatt Earp and Doc Holliday, right? And Wyatt Earp and Doc Holliday, well, Wyatt Earp is about, towards the end of the movie, he's about to face his arch enemy. And he knows he's outmanned. He's outgunned. You know, and uh, he goes to Doc Holliday and he says, you know, what makes a person like Ringo, Doc? What makes him do the things he does? And Doc Holliday responds, a man like Ringo has got a great big hole right in the middle of him. He can never kill enough or steal enough or inflict enough pain to ever fill it. And, and, you know, what he's saying here is the same thing that Scripture says throughout. From birth, sin creates this deep hole in our heart. And we're just spending the rest of, our, rest of our lives trying to fill it. We're just trying to fill it. We're trying to fill it with money and with power and with relationships and sex. And that's why money's got this power over us. It serves as this tangible measure of worth that separates one person from another person. And we're able to say, you know, because I have, you know, I'm worthy. It's a way of measuring ourselves. We need someone good to validate us. And that's why Jesus says in verse 21, he says, there's one thing you lack. The man's looking for validation. Jesus says, there's one thing you lack. You lack assurance. You lack validation. You lack confidence. He's saying, you know, I am the source of validation. The only source of validation that you need. My approval is actually what you're really looking for. The reason why you're working so hard, because you're trying to complete something that I'm going to do. I'm going to do the work. I'm going to complete. I'm going to complete it. You need my validation. You're looking for my approval, but this man, he doesn't get it. He doesn't get it. He just, he just couldn't do that. So the first part of this text is the warning. You know, what, what, what we're saying here is that money in the form of buying power, that's your monetary capital, in the form of job, you know, your career capital, in the form of you know, human resource capital, your skill sets, your positions, your titles, in the form of like your intellectual capital, your degrees, the sum of your studies, your academics, in the form of your, your social capital, your networks, the extent of your networks. You know, these things are such a power and a grip over you. It leads you to distort your view of yourself, your view of other people, your own identity, your sense of worth, your happiness. That's the first point. The second point, much quicker, is the teaching. We've got the warning. Now we have, you know, the teaching. Why is money such a power in our lives? And this is the part of the text where we arrive at Jesus' famous 
controversial statement, right? He says, uh, you know, he says it's easy for, uh, easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. You know, he starts out, he says, how difficult is it? How difficult it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Clearly, Jesus was questioning whether or not this rich man, this one who just abandoned him, just re- he walked away sad, it said. He rejected Jesus. Clearly, Jesus was, was questioning whether or not this rich man had eternal life. You know, but there's something interesting about this text. The disciples, they're poor, right? The disciples, they don't flinch. They don't respond by saying, you know, I'm glad you said that. That's fine because I was judging him from the moment he approached you. I didn't like the guy. I didn't like his attitude. I didn't like his personality. He seemed awfully arrogant to me. You know, thank God I'm poor because I have eternal life. They don't say that here. That's not what they say. Why don't they say that? This wasn't a typical rich man. He wasn't just rich. He goes up to Jesus and he says, what must I do? What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus responds with the commandments. He starts to recite the law, particularly the areas that have to do with your relationships with other people and money in some ways. Mainly, what Jesus, if you look at what he's saying here in this text, he cites certain commandments, specific commandments. Basically, what he's asking the man, have you ever defrauded people? Have you ever exploited people? Stepped over somebody to get ahead? Have you ever inflicted pain on somebody at your, you know, for your gain? That's really what he was asking. He says, you know, I want you to follow these commandments. You know, have you, have you ever done this or this or this? Or basically all in the nature of fraud or, or um, uh, you know, uh, exploitation, you know, challenging whether or not he's dishonored somebody. And the man says, no. I kept these things since I was a child. I've always treated people with kindness. I've always respected people. And, and you know, he says, you know, I didn't, I didn't make any of my money through fraud or by oppressing people or exploiting other people. I made my money basically through discipline, through hard work, in a respectable way, in an honorable way. In other words, this man had terrific character. He was a virtuous man. He wasn't just your typical rich person the way we look at rich people today, like the really rich people, right? The response here, you know, you'd think that Jesus would roll his eyes at the man. You know as you read it, you rolled your eyes and your heart at the man. You would think that the disciples would have rolled their eyes at the man, but they didn't. Instead, you know what they say? Verse 26. If this man can't get in, who can? then who can enter the kingdom of God? Who can be saved, they asked. This person was of such integrity. He he was such an outstanding person. His qualities were so good, it made the disciples question, and it made them doubt. It made them doubt themselves. So by now, you know, we know that we have a hint or a clue that Jesus didn't have a problem with the man's wealth. It was more than about his wealth. He didn't have a problem with the man's wealth. Clearly, you know, Jesus is not saying that the simple fact of having lots of money condemns you. A lot of you here are saying, thank God, right? Clearly, Jesus was not saying that the simple fact of having money is what condemns you. But he says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. For a while, you know, I've been trying to understand what that means. You know, verse 25 
You, look, you read a ton of commentaries and you realize they all say different things, which tells you they're struggling to understand what that means. You know, and they, some of them focus on the word camel. Some of them focus on, you know, they think it's a pun for other words. Some of them focus on the word needle. And they really, really try to stretch what they're trying to get out of this. And at the end of the day, they all agree on one thing. It's confusing, you know, what he was really trying to say. I think it was a metaphor. Mainly what he was saying was, um, it's impossible for a rich person to enter into the kingdom of God if, because money is such a power in that person's life. Every one of us, what he's saying is every one of us here struggles with money. There is not a single person, whether you're rich, whether you're, you know, average, whether you're on the lower part of the income scale, you know, every one of us here struggles with money. We struggle with wealth. Every person. And so it's impossible for us who are so driven by our finances to enter into the kingdom of God unless... He's, you know, look at this man. He, you know, clear presentation of the way... Just simple, simply by the way he approached Jesus and walked away. He approached Jesus begging on his knees in the text. You know, what must I do, he says. He walked away sad on his own two feet. Money has such a power over us. We feel the sense of control. We feel a sense of just, we just need to have it in order to have control in our lives. This man just walked away on his own two feet. Showed, showed up begging. Walked away on his own two feet. Self-sufficient. I can't give it up. So hooked. And, and what Jesus is saying is money is such a powerful grip that you, and you will so completely lose yourself in, your, in money unless, verse 27, God himself intervenes. With man, it is impossible. Impossible is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. In other words, it's impossible for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. It's impossible for anybody who's so driven by money to enter into the kingdom of God unless, he says, with man, it's impossible. The disciples say, who can be saved then? With man, it's impossible. But nothing is impossible with God unless God himself intervenes and cuts through and intrudes into our lives, we will be so blinded by the power of money in our lives, we, got, we don't have a chance. We don't have a chance. And uh, here's this man. He's rich. He's young. He's virtuous. He's attractive. You know, clearly, he's the ruler over many. You know, he's attractive. He thinks he's got it all together but he's not altogether. He knows he's lacking. That's why he was seeking someone good to validate him. The money's made him blind. He needs God to intervene. So how does God intervene? How can we be free of the grip and the power of money in our lives? You know, Jesus didn't come to be a teacher. He was a teacher. Jesus didn't come to become some sort of moral example. He was a great example the greatest example. Jesus didn't come to become a, just to be a religious leader. He is regarded one of the greatest religious leaders. He didn't come to be those three things. He came to be our substitute. This rich man comes up to Jesus, says, what must I do? And Jesus responds with the commandments. The rich man says, I've already, I've already done that. I already do that. You know, Jesus could have called him out. Jesus knows him. He could have said, no, you haven't. I remember these instances where you violated the commandments. I, I remember these instances where, where you haven't been virtuous. 
He could have easily done that, but it doesn't say, the text doesn't say, and Jesus rejected him. And the man walked away sad. That's not what it says. Verse 21 says, Jesus looked at him and loved him. He looked at him with compassion. Here's this man. He thinks he's good. He thinks he's got it all together. Presents himself in front of Jesus and says, I need eternal life. I want to make sure. Just tell me what I need to do and I'm on it. And Jesus could have easily just said, you know, you are so arrogant to think that you can get to God on your own. And you can't. Go away from me. I don't know you. Jesus does promise that he'll say that to other people. People who are virtuous. People who say, we've done great things in your name. He says, go away, I I never knew you. But that's not what he says to this man. The text says he looked at him and he loved him. He's done it countless times to many Pharisees, teachers of the law, people who've, who've taught, who understand the word of God. He easily told them he's rejected them, denounced them, right? But here, he's gentle. Here, he's counseling the man. Here, it's the rich man that rejects Jesus, not the other way around. Why doesn't he reject him? Why doesn't Jesus, the text says he looked at him and he loved him. When you love somebody, you have this desire to know them. You have this desire to understand them. You have this desire to just have just this great compassion for them. You know, Jesus looked at this man and he understood. He understood the man's grief. He understood what this man gave up. He gives him direction. He says, I want you to go. I want you to sell everything you've got. I want you to take everything, take that money. I want you to give it to the poor. I want you to follow me. He tells the man, here's how you get eternal life. I want you to go and sell and give and follow me. You will have treasures in heaven. Don't worry about this. Loosen your grip on these things and follow me. How do you get over the power of money in our lives? You've got to surrender everything. That's basically what Jesus is saying. It's not basic. That's explicitly what he's saying. Surrender all. Give everything up. Follow him. How do you do that? Why did Jesus look at this man and not turn him away outright? He looked at him and he loved him. You know why? Because he understands what it means to be young. He understands what it means to be rich. He understands what it means to be a ruler. Jesus was also rich. Jesus was a rich man, wealthier than anybody on earth. Jesus was a ruler. He was, his kingdom was far vast than any ruler on earth. He understands what it means to be a rich, young ruler. And he had treasures in heaven, and he knew under, what it means to be just wealthier beyond compare. He knows what it means to give it up. If anybody understands what it means to lose, Jesus understands. He gave up everything. He knows the pain of what it is to just leave everything behind, to go. He knows the pain of giving everything up for the poor and giving it away. He understands that. If anybody understands that, it's Jesus. The pain of that, the sacrifice of that. All of his honor on top of that. All of his glory, his significance, his worth, his riches, his inheritance. Jesus had it all. And he gave it all up. He left it all behind. He gave it all up. In Mark chapter 14, verses 33 to 34, you see Jesus, and he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus is also grieving. Jesus is also moved and he's broken. 
And it reads like this. He took Peter, James, and John. They were his best friends of the twelve. He took them along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. In other texts in the Gethsemane, as he's praying, it said that sweat, beads of sweat dropped, and it was like blood. That's what it said. And if you look at that word in the Greek, the word distress and trouble and sorrow, those words were the same Greek words, the only other time actually in the Gospels where those words were used, the only other time it was used was when this man, this rich man, walked away from Jesus. It was that grief, that same exact grief. Jesus felt that pain. But not just that pain, a greater pain. So when Jesus is looking at that rich man, he understands. He knows the pain of giving it up. He's far more rich, far more virtuous. He's the only man who could dare say that he lived up to every one of those commandments, every portion of the law, every iota of the law. And on top of that, he's young. He was just in the middle of his ministry, young, in his 30s. And he's a king. He is the ruler. He is the king of kings. His kingdom is far greater. And yet at Gethsemane, he was suffering the ultimate disaster, the ultimate distress, the ultimate grief. What was he suffering? To the point of death, he said, I am sorrowful. Why? Because he knows. Not only did he leave it all behind, not only did he leave his kingdom behind to, become, to, to be unrecognizable, there was nothing about him that was attracted, it says in Isaiah 53. But God was asking him, to give up his, God was asking him to go. God was asking him to give it up. God was asking him to give it up to the poor. God was asking him to follow him all the way to the cross, all the way to the cross, where there would be ultimate surrender, ultimate sacrifice. His sweat dropped like blood, it said, because that's what he would give up. That's what he would tithe. That's what he would surrender. You know, this rich man, You know, he grieved over the mere thought of losing his greatest treasure. Jesus was giving up and gave up on the cross the sum of his wealth, the sum of his status, the sum of his glory. He knew that. On the cross, you know, he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know what he was saying? He was saying, beyond the kingdom, beyond my wealth, beyond my status and my titles, I can give those things up, but I am giving you up. You have departed from me. The thing that is my ultimate treasure, the thing that is my ultimate center, the thing that is my ultimate sense of worth has now, I just lost it. And now I am bankrupt to the core, to the depths. We read in the Apostles' Creed, he descended to hell. He was completely separated from God. That is hell. He suffered and experienced hell for us. Why? Why did he do that? He did it for us. He gave up his relationship. He gave up his access to the Father so that we would have access. He gave up his treasure so that we would have treasure. He gave up his status so that we could be called sons of God. So you can have access, so you can have intimacy, so you can have relationship. He gave it all up. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I lived a perfect life, and I've lost it all. And so that he would never be able to go, he, so that he wouldn't go to heaven without you. Do you see that? Does that move you? Does that break you? We have to look to the rich young ruler. He gave up his greatest treasure. Jesus gave up his ultimate treasure. Why? I mean, why would you ever sacrifice any portion of your treasure 
It has to be because you know that there's something better to gain. You know, Jesus doesn't say just give it all up and die. He says, give it up, you have treasures in heaven. There has to be something. Your view of tomorrow will shape your view, the way you live today. What did Jesus live for if that was worth sacrificing everything that he's got? You are his treasure. You are his treasure. He did it for you. And the more you take that truth and plant that in, then you can make Jesus your treasure. And when you make Jesus your treasure, then you know you've got access. Then you've got approval. Then you've got money. Then you've got status. You've got wealth beyond compare. You've got kingdom beyond compare. You've got the inheritance. And when you've got that as your foundation, then the grip of money becomes loosened in your life. You know why? Because you're trading one worship, you're just reorienting that worship to where it's due, one that will never fail, one that will never lead you to bankruptcy. You know what? Money has a power over us, and it makes you work and work and work and work. But Jesus is the only treasure in our lives that will never render you bankrupt, that will bankrupt him. He's the only treasure that will bankrupt himself for you. So you would have ultimate riches, ultimate wealth, ultimate access. You don't need money then to become a measure of your life. Now, that's going to change a lot of things. I want to run through this very quickly. You know, you can take the time, take the week and unpack it. You know, if you don't, if money stops being the measure of your life, you know, it does a lot of things. It's going to change, number one, how you view yourself. You know, you don't measure yourself by your title. You know, you look at the, the cost that was paid for you, that would break you. The gospel renders us incredibly humble. And at the same time, you know, if money is no longer the measure of your life and the gospel becomes the measure of your life, you have incredible worth. That is your ultimate worth. That's the validation that we're looking for. The good teacher says you are worthy. When you have that, then you have approval. Then you have access, right? You have all those things that gives you an incredible confidence. Only through the gospel do you have humility and confidence married together. Most other places, you will look lower of yourself, and that makes you incredibly humble. Or you're going to look very well of yourself, and that's going to make you very confident. Only in the gospel will you be incredibly broken and yet incredibly confident. And that changes the way, that's going to change your personality. That's going to change your behavior. Think about this. Think about how, you know, when you go on, when you meet somebody, you know, a significant other, a potential you know, we have a lot of people who are, who are in that stage, right, where they're, they're in that relationship-seeking stage. When, you're, when you meet somebody, what is it, and you're, after that first date, whether you were set up with that person or a blind date or something like that, your friends are going to ask you, inevitably, what's that person like? What do you say? Look at the qualities that you recite. It's always the outward qualities. You know, he actually wasn't that bad-looking, you know? He was actually better than what his picture looked like, you know? but he's the, the vice president of this so-and-so firm, and he does this, and he's accomplished this, he went to this school, right? Those are the things that we look at. But, you know, that's because it's, you know, that's the, trying to push the camel through the eye of the needle, you know what I'm saying? You know, because it's so, it's, money has a way of distorting the way we look at other people. Think about why we so desperately need acceptance from people who are just better looking than us. Because that's what makes it feel good about yourself. Where those popular people, the people who are already accepted. If, if Jesus, if the gospel becomes the measure of your worth, it's going to, first of all, change the way you view yourself. You know, think about what it would do in your dating life, what you look for. These days, we look for good-looking people, and we just hope that they are, they, they are in the Lord. 
you know, in our day and age. Think about the qualities that you would look for. It does amazing things. Think about what it would do with how you view other people. You know, you would want somebody, you would want to be friends, surround yourself in a community that has experienced true freedom, deep security in their lives. And stop measuring people against uh, the worldly forms of security. Think about how you view your money. It's going to open up opportunities for you to give radically. If not in the church, somewhere else. You're going to give radically. Think about, you know, who you hang out with. In our day and age, our world is becoming more and more fragmented. And, and what that does is we, we're, the rich are hanging more with the rich, the poor hang more with the poor. You know why? It's a way of staving ourselves off of guilt or judgment. If I'm, if I'm a rich man hanging out with other rich people, I'm not, I don't have to ask anything of them. They're not going to ask anything of me. It's a way of staving off any sense of obligation or guilt at the same time or judgment, right? But, you know, imagine when the gospel takes over your life, what that would do for, the, for who you look to to hang, hang with. Metro Presbyterian Church was formed um, primarily because we know that there's a, the 21st century is going to be an amazing century. Because do you know that in our century today, there are just as many missionaries coming to the United States as there are being sent out? <laughs> you know, and they're attacking the rich. They're coming to the rich. Can you imagine what's going to happen when the gospel penetrates the rich? Amazing things are going to happen. That's why we're here. We're here to reach out to that community, you know, and as we sit right in between rich and poor, educated and uneducated here in this city, this part of the city, in East Falls. But it will never happen unless we're free because you're going to be resentful and bitter if you just give like that. The thing is, it's not going to get you any closer to God. You're not going to sense any intimacy doing that. Let plunge your wealth, plunge your talents, plunge your skills into the grace of God and see what it does. Take that for a spin. See where it takes you. It's going to take you to amazing places, places you probably didn't think you'd go. You know, three, four years ago, never thought I'd be a minister. God, you know, and, I, you know, but then I had to pray, you know, Lord, take me to where you want me to go. And you know what he did? Of course you know what he did. He made me a minister, you know. The Lord will take you to places you never thought you'd go. Do what you never thought you'd do. Will you do that? It doesn't happen overnight, but it does happen in the context of community. Will you join with this body and serve and work together to work these things out? to practice as a community how to serve your community with the gospel, with the grace of God. Will you do that? Let's pray together.